Welcome to Medical Minefield, the podcast where we talk about the ethical dilemmas at the heart of the health stories that matter the most. I'm Barney Kalman. And I'm Eve Simmons. And we're health journalists who spend our lives asking tough questions to experts who really know their stuff so you don't have to. This week, we're talking about the scandal of medical trial fraud and whether we can trust medical studies. As always, we'd like to know what you think. If you have a question or comment, you can tweet us using the hashtag MedicalMinefield or email us on health at mailonsunday.co.uk. Eve, this is a really complicated subject and I have to say I knew absolutely nothing about it until someone highlighted an article to me that was published by the British Medical Journal earlier this year talking about medical trial fraud. Now, you and I, we we often, when we're reporting on a new treatment or a new use for a treatment that already Mm. exists, we'll say, you know, show me the studies. Because as lay people, essentially, if we can find those studies that back up that something works, Mm. you know, we'll feel much more comfortable with writing about them to say, you know, scientists who we could all trust have checked this and they've studied it and it works on lots of people and it does what it says on the tin and and therefore it's good to recommend it. And of course, there are problems with studies that we, we will also talk about. Yeah. We write about these all the time, that, you know, the the design of some studies is set up so that it doesn't actually reflect what it says it's it's studying and that kind of thing we're talking about. Unrealistic or overblown claims based on, you know, data that that doesn't quite, you know, doesn't quite. And things that stand out to us as non scientists, like small patient groups and that kind of thing. Yeah, saying this cures X when in fact, you know, two people hadn't, uh, you know, had a good experience on this drug. Or or, it it cures. Yours, cancer in rats, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So, so I mean, these these are the kinds of things that, that I could get my head around and, you know, we, we, can, we can spot those. But this is something else. So I'm going to give you an example. Please that, do, because this is, you have tried to explain this to me and I, I think <laughs> I get it, but I'll probably embarrass myself. So it's a historic example. In the mid-90s, a case was reported in the British Journal of Obstetrics And it was an astonishing story. A woman aged 29 who had suffered an ectopic pregnancy, and that's when the embryo implants outside of the womb, usually in the fallopian tube. And in some cases, that that may just be reabsorbed, but if it begins to grow, it quickly becomes a medical emergency Mm. and tragically always results in the termination of the pregnancy in order to save the life of the mother. This report was remarkable. A surgeon named Malcolm Pierce claimed that he had successfully performed a procedure in which he'd removed this embryo from the wrong place and reimplanted it in the uterus of the mother. And that woman had gone on to have a healthy baby. Wow. It made world news. That's incredible, yeah. But quickly, problems emerged. Whistleblowers at the hospital in London, St George's, where Pierce worked, contacted the journal and then later, clearly the press, and told them they didn't think that this event had ever taken place. Another study that the same doctor had done was also flagged up to have inconsistencies containing an unrealistic high number of patients with a certain rare set of circumstances. Mm. So the journal began questioning Pierce And it turned out, in a rather macabre way, that he had 
amalgamated and falsified computer records to create a fake patient, one of whom turned out to be a dead woman, and the other woman who suffered the ectopic pregnancy had, in fact, miscarried. So a really dreadful, dreadful case. So completely made it up. Completely invented. And, so, and these cases were there, were published studies then? That he this was published them. in the British Journal of Obstetrics. Pierce was sacked because all of this came out. It made the front pages, I believe, of the Daily Mail. So yes, he was he was sacked. He was later struck off. The journal's editor, who was his senior at the hospital and had also put his name to the study without really looking into oh. it, which is apparently a common thing in academia. It's called a, a gift authorship that someone very, you know, renowned will mm. put their name on your study. He also was forced to resign. He was <laughs> the was president of the Royal College oh. as well as the editor of the journal. So it was a huge scandal and dreadfully embarrassing. And the fact is that this although an extreme example, goes on all the time. That people invent what? studies. Yeah, I mean, I, I was completely gobsmacked, as you know. I've spent the last couple of weeks talking to various whistleblowers who've tried to raise the alarm about this problem. They say that up to one in five medical trials could, in fact, be fraudulent. And so that means containing fake data, invented patients completely false. Hang on a minute. So surgeons or academics or whoever, well, scientists, would make up a patient and make up a story, well, a scientific experiment and then write that in a paper and then publish it. Why the hell would anyone want to do that? Well, I think we should probably ask the people that have been looking into this for years. First on the line, we have former British Medical Journal editor Richard Smith and it was his article that, that triggered us looking into all of this. Richard, thanks very much for finding some time to talk to us. I suppose my first question is, are we really to believe that up to one in five medical trials could be fraudulent or faked? Well, I think we are, unfortunately. I, I think we have a lot of evidence to that effect that has been gathered in different sorts of ways from different sources. I mean, it is a, a truly shocking figure, and whether it would have been true 20, 30 years ago is perhaps debatable, because a lot of these trials do seem to come, come from countries like China, India, Turkey, Iran, where there wasn't a lot of research 10, 20 years ago. But we shouldn't deceive ourselves into thinking this is a problem only of those kind of countries. There's fraudulent research being produced all over the place. And you were involved in, uh, I, I've mentioned already uh, during the podcast, the case of Malcolm Pierce, and you were actually involved in that case. Yes, I mean, that was a case that sent great tremors through the British research community back at a time when I think we weren't as conscious of how much fraud there is. And I was on the panel of inquiry the statistician said there are a huge number of problems with this paper. And we said, well, did it ever occur to you that it was fraudulent? He said, well, no, it never did. I think these days it probably would. I mean, that brings me on to the question as to how these make their way, how these fake trials make their way into publication. And certainly there's a process that happens before a medical study is published in a major journal, isn't there? It's called peer review. Could you explain that? Yes, I mean, peer review, it comes in various different forms, but in essence, 
you ask one or more experts to scrutinize a study before it's published. But I must say I've been very critical of peer review. I've been involved in a lot of research studies into peer review and unfortunately it's quite easy to demonstrate the downside. It's slow, it's inefficient, it's something of a lottery, it doesn't pick up errors. But one thing we know for sure is that it may pick up fraud, but it, it doesn't routinely pick up fraud. Because if someone says, if the author of a paper says there were 200 patients, then we assume there were 200 patients. We don't say, well, show us their signatures and their photographs and their records. So the whole system is based on trust. And even when you pick up substantial errors, as happened with the Malcolm Pierce case, often the supposition is, well, that's that's a mistake, that's an error, that's the nature of human activity, rather than it's deliberately fraudulent. So peer review will sometimes detect a fraudulent study, but just because something has passed peer review doesn't mean it isn't fraudulent. And just to be clear, what, what sort of problems have been discovered in these, in these dodgy studies? What are the problems with them? Well, there are all sorts of problems. I mean, a lot of the problems, they're simply invented from beginning to end. You know, there were no patients. I mean, in addition, there are many ways to manipulate studies. Uh, I mean, there's a famous phrase that if you torture the data, they will confess. So you can manipulate data to get results that you would like to get when really you haven't done it properly at all. There, there are many different ways. But one of the biggest problems is that they're simply invented in the first place. There, there were no patients. They never happened. They're simply an invention. Richard, can I ask you, why on earth would anyone want to do this? Well, because in the academic uh, community, publication is the main currency. The funders want publications, the universities want publications, the individual scientists want publications, the publishers and the journals want publications. You know, everybody potentially gains, and we don't have a very good system for detecting what is fraudulent, so that as Ian Roberts, the professor who's driven a lot of this discussion, says, you know, everybody wins except the patients who lose out because they're potentially treated on the basis of false information. I mean, that's that's my question is, I mean, for, for us, does it mean that doctors are treating patients based on dodgy data and dodgy evidence? Yes, I think sometimes it does, unfortunately. I, I mean... Science depends really on accumulation of evidence, but there are certainly examples of where people have done systematic reviews not understanding that a lot of the studies are fraudulent and have reached the conclusion that something works, and yet the real, the, the real state of affairs is, it, is that it doesn't work. I mean, you talk about a system of trust within the medical journal community, um, but on hearing this, are you not concerned that the public can't trust doctors now or science? I think you have to be sceptical. Of course, that's the, the nature of, you know, that's where scientists themselves start. They're always sceptical, uh, you know, that uh, you test a hypothesis till you, could, you keep testing it, trying to show that it's not true. And if you can't show it's not true, then you assume it's provisionally true. I mean, lots of science is based on provisional truths not absolute truths. But I don't think that translates into not being able to trust doctors. I mean, most of the treatments that doctors are giving are well-established, 
are long-standing, are familiar. Richard, do you think, again, in the interest of being reassuring, that as a general rule, the more studies that seem to lean a certain way about a certain treatment, the better, and the more we can, generally speaking, trust it? Yeah, and no, I think that's, that's a good way to put it. I mean, I, I use the example of cigarette smoking causing lung cancer. I mean, one study suggested it initially. A lot of people were very sceptical. But then you begin to have different sorts of studies, different kinds of evidence, and slowly but surely it accumulates to the point where it's absolutely clear that smoking causes lung cancer and many other conditions. And that works similarly with, with treatments, that evidence that accumulates that treatments are effective. So I think the time to be especially sceptical is, is with anything new. Well, Richard, thanks very much for bringing this to a wider attention. We really appreciate your time. I mean, that's terrifying. (laughs) Everything we know is a lie. I have to say, when I read Richard's piece in the BMJ at first, I didn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. Mm. You know, it seems to turn everything that we knew on its head. But in fact, it is, as he says, and there are people out there um, producing these dodgy dodgy uh, studies and something when I was looking into it it's a little bit like so some people will produce them themselves and and sort of sit down and work out how to to kind of invent things and to look plausible mm. but much like the problem with university students employing these paper mills mm. in order to produce theses and all kinds of things apparently the same thing exists in the science community and you can simply pay wow. one of these paper mills to produce a scientific study and they are able to do this at high volume as well. So it's a whole industry of fraud, basically. And astonishingly, in the UK, it's not illegal. That's absolutely mad. Why isn't it illegal? Well, you know, it's a professional misconduct, mm. but it's not against the law. So you could be struck off the medical registry if you're a doctor or you could be sacked by your institution or disciplined in some way, but you haven't actually broken a law by inventing a medical trial. However, although this may seem like a, an incredibly bleak and a despairing situation, I have to agree with you, there are great efforts going on at the moment in order to try and stamp this problem out. Yes, on the line now is public health expert Professor Lisa Barrow, who heads up the Research Integrity Unit for the medical study body Cochrane. Just to give a bit of background, Cochrane is an organisation that looks at hundreds and hundreds of different studies and um, try and find definitive answers to medical questions. So in this way, they are perfectly placed to be hunting for medical fraud. Professor Barrow, thank you so much for finding some time. Okay. Lisa, what is Cochrane doing to stamp out medical trial fraud? We have a policy that uh, gives reviewers, Cochrane reviewers, a number of tools to help detect uh, a problematic study. And so we don't recommend one particular tool, but we recommend a variety ranging from statistical tests to seeing if a study is registered, for example. So that's step one. And then step two, if they identify a problematic study, then they do not include it in their Cochrane review. They put it in either a waiting assessment or they exclude it and they give the reason. And then step three is we ask the reviewers to contact 
the journal editors um, to request a correction or retraction of the study. Some studies have found that fraudsters have produced hundreds and hundreds of these fake studies. So isn't it a worry that there's many, many more out there that we don't know about? Right. These paper mills have occurred more recently. So they're uh, the hundreds and hundreds of studies that are different from the few studies that an individual investigator might uh, falsify. So yes, they're a huge worry. And that's why we have these mechanisms in place to try to detect them, but also to stamp them out of the original literature. We don't think it's just enough to exclude them from Cochrane reviews. We think we really need to try to get them out of the literature, which is, of course, extra work to do. Lisa, when we've been talking about this, um, you know, I I asked you before why Cochrane wasn't doing more to to stamp this out. And you pointed out that you're just one body who reviews medical studies. And in fact, you know, you can't police the entire uh, scientific world. Um, You know, even if you have these great policies in place, doesn't it just mean that people will find workarounds or submit their submit their studies to places where, you know, less questions are asked or, you know, I mean, what can be done really about the, the entire environment where this happens? Well, what you're doing today is great. We need to raise awareness of this topic. Um, you're right. We only have control over what goes into a Cochrane review but we also hope that would set an example for other journals or other publishers that this is a serious problem. And, you know, if you're publishing a fraudulent study, it's not going to wind up in a Cochrane review. And in fact, that's going to be made public. So we really need to get all the journals and publishers uh, together. And some journals and publishers are quite reputable. Others aren't. The ones that, for example, may, um, you know, support these uh, paper mills that produce the hundreds of papers. But we really need to change the entire uh, publication system. And Cochrane's involved in a number of advocacy uh, activities. One is around retracted studies and how we actually get people to stop using studies that are retracted because even after retraction, they're still out there. Mm. Um, so Zombie studies. Be involved. Yes, yes. We need to be involved in uh, advocacy, which we uh, have been. Uh, But we just can't do it uh, alone. And we do need other journals and publishers uh, to get on board. And I think, um, you know, the academic incentive system, you know, the whole publish or perish uh, idea for promotion is still around. And that also needs to be changed. And funders also have some responsibility because they play into that as well. Um, They count the you know, publish or perish uh, record uh, as something they look at when they're going to give you a grant. And so, you know, the whole the whole incentive system needs to change. It's a huge, huge uh, job. Um, and we hope we're doing our part. Understandable that it's a, a big job. But, you know, whistleblowers have been very frustrated. They've come to us to publish on this uh, because they say that the pace has been so slow that this has been going on for decades and decades and everyone knows it's happening. Um, but, you know, it's still going on. In fact, it may well be getting worse, as you say, uh, due to the new technology. Yes, and I think that, um, that, I mean, that's why we have our policies uh, in place. Uh, Our policies did take a while to get finalized because we're a global organization and we do, you know, global consultation. Um, Also, in Cochrane specifically, we don't publish just randomized controlled trials. We publish uh, a lot of public health interventions, uh, policy, like health policy type research. And so 
That includes, you know, studies like interrupted time series and cohort studies, case controls. And there's not an easy fix there for those kind of studies because, for example, they're not typically registered. Um, it's actually more important to have a protocol that you can look at than a registration. And often they don't have protocols, so that that's becoming much more common, luckily. So we, we um, suggest that authors look at protocols. But it's, um, yeah, I mean, we, there, we need to approach this from a variety of uh, angles. Um, I think the, you know, bringing this to public attention will help because, I mean, people ought to be outraged uh, that these uh, fake studies are out there. Well, that was going to be my next question. I mean, is surely this means for patients, you know, that they're being treated based on studies that include dodgy data? Right. Well, they can be, particularly if they're being uh, treated on a drug that's been funded in one trial. So again, that's another power of doing a Cochrane review, because as you know, we look at all the evidence available on a topic. So if there are some dodgy studies and there are some good studies, the Cochrane review will focus on the good ones. You get into really dangerous waters when you're you know, basing medical decisions on just one or two recent trials that have come out because you don't know um, you know, if the full body of evidence has been looked at and which of those trials are valid. Does that ever happen? Trials aren't. Is there any any uh, any examples you can give of where that when that's happened? Sorry, I don't have uh, a specific example. I mean, ivermectin is a recent uh, review that Cochrane's funded, where a lot of uh, people were promoting ivermectin for COVID, and in that we exposed that a number of the studies were not um, valid, and those were actually excluded from the Cochrane review. Is there scope for a situation whereby, say, for instance, there's a a medical device company or a healthcare company that's trying to sell their new stent or whatever to hospitals and they then collaborate with a research team to understand the efficacy of their device um, on patients? So you're talking about potential for fraudulent studies to be conducted in this arena and therefore you know, with, with a huge, huge pay packet behind it, essentially. Yeah, well, that's a very old story, unfortunately. And uh, Cochrane has very strict rules about um, financial conflicts of interest. And we look at that as a, um, a characteristic of any study we include in a, in a Cochrane review, because that can run the risk, not just in terms of fraudulent data, but in terms of, um, you know, slanting the data in a certain way so that the sponsor's product looks more favorable than whatever it's being compared to. So that's something that's been going on for uh, decades that Cochrane has brought a lot of attention to, this kind of industry bias in uh, research. And so it's important to remember, I mean, totally made-up fraudulent studies are uh, a terrible problem, but there are a lot of other ways you can manipulate the findings of studies as well. And Cochrane has a much longer track record actually focusing on all those other types of manipulations. Do you think it should be made illegal everywhere? <laughs> well, I think that uh, there are consequences now if you go through, um, you know, whatever legal proceeding of whatever country you're in uh, for people who uh, conduct uh, fraudulent trials. And it usually ends at them losing their job and not being eligible for any uh, further government funding for their research, for example. I don't know if it's uh, put anybody in jail. And it'll depend on the country's legal system. I think it should, because if you can demonstrate that harm has been done to patients, then, you know, that that seems to me it should have a legal consequence. 
but I don't know offhand of any country that does that. And it does differ uh, by country, as someone who's been involved in these investigations can tell you. Well, that's a great explanation of a very difficult to understand topic. So thank you very much, Professor Lisa Barrow, for joining us. Hi, sorry to interrupt your listening, but there's another great podcast from the Mail on Sunday you might want to try. Liz Jones's Diary, The Podcast, offering a weekly look into the life of Britain's most unfiltered columnist. That's me. Find us at mailplus.co.uk. Well, I think it absolutely should be illegal. I think that scientists have been found to invent studies that then influence medical decisions that affect patients should face the stiffest penalties. I completely agree. I guess in terms of looking at patients, the difficulty with this is that, say, for instance, with ivermectin, it's very hard to convince somebody that, well, these trials are fraudulent and the studies don't work and they don't actually result in what they claim to result in. That's not very convincing to someone who says, well, look, there's studies and they're published and it shows that ivermectin works and so it works. Um, I mean, to an extent, you're right that people believe what they want to believe. One of the very famous cases of uh, research fraud was Andrew Wakefield, who I don't want to be quoted on exactly how he fiddled with his data, but I think it was the way that he recruited children onto the trials that then suggested that MMR was linked to autism mm. or that he knew them, claimed that he didn't know them. There, there was something very dodgy. I think the way they got him was because of medical trial fraud, mm. um, not anything else. But that didn't stop people from believing him. I mean, this guy's still out there dating Elle McPherson, yep. claiming MMR. Well, people take the top line, don't they? autism, yeah. so... You know, but that's why this is so important. You know, when a scientific study comes out, it has huge impact, even if it's just one study. And this, this is what makes me angry, though, because it's almost banking on the fact that the layperson won't really understand what's wrong with it mm. or will take a while to get there. Oh, absolutely. And you, you've got this uh, Didier Raoult who came up with the hydroxychloroquine, the anti-malarial treatment for COVID. Um, I mean, he basically went and got it published on Fox News rather than in a journal. And hey, presto, President Trump recommends it and the French government recommends it. Well, I mean, yeah, I could say similar stories from uh, a lot of the diet myths that have been peddled in the last couple of years oh yeah someone's got a diet book to flog why not invent a study stop eating bread (laughs) no i'm gonna go and have a pizza (laughs) and with that i think that's all we've got time for Uh, you'll find all the latest health news in this weekend's the mail on sunday and visit mailplus.co.uk forward slash subscribe to get access to all our podcasts videos opinion pieces and more you can also follow us on twitter by searching at mail plus and we'll be back with another topic on medical minefield next week see you then goodbye